up to shine. That or don't show it all. Sit at home and unwind. They continue, they front and they keep ignoring the signs. Ain't shit out there, I'm hunting. Everything in its time. And that's right now. That bright black with a sharp tongue and the beats crack. And he bites back with shark teeth and he eats that. That black blocker that can't stop when the coppers creep. And I don't show up, I'm trash talk, I'm fuck peace. I'm Chris Dorner, I'm Doberman Dirt. Okay, welcome to Savage Beast, a podcast about music. I'm Joe Gallagher, and here with me is Paul McLeod. Hello, how is everybody? I'm just going to assume that everyone is good. Uh, Paul, what was the name of that track? That was uh, Sleep Drone slash Superposition by POS, which I, pre- I imagine doesn't stand for piece of shit, but I uh, haven't looked up what it does stand for yet. It's pretty much the opposite of what that track is. It's fucking, yeah. fucking awesome. Yeah, it blew my mind, um, and uh, so much so that I bought it on the spot, which I don't do that much. Impressive. Yeah. What do you think about you know the the merging of like uh, electronic music and rap? I mean, do you think that's happened completely at this point? No, it hasn't happened completely. Um, you know, uh, for one thing, really most of the electronic music I get exposed to, like new stuff, is like you know, more, uh, techno house stuff, which there are influences of that on rap production, but it's still its own separate thing. EDM also not really, you know, there are crossovers with rap, but it's not, it's not part of rap. I just, I, I, I feel like I, there's a, a future group coming where, those two are merged beautifully in this way that we have not yet imagined. And like all this, this emotion from the, uh, uh, electronic music merges with the power of rap. Well, there's certainly, there's certainly, uh, songs, maybe albums or even acts that do that. Uh, you know, like Danny Brown and purity ring. Right. Yes. Or big grams. Uh, uh-huh. the, the Fantagrams and Big Boy collaboration. That album is actually really good. Really? I don't think I've listened to it maybe at all. Yeah. Know. Yeah. It's that's that's uh that's definitely kind of what I've kind of what I'm thinking about. Um although they're that's more of like a one time crossover right. experiment. Um yeah. it'd be interesting to hear a band that kind of started out um organically that way. That yeah. was that, you know, Really fulfilling the promise of Limp Biscuit uh, and Incubus. <laughs> um, so here we are. Uh, uh, w- let's talk about what is new in the world of music. Yeah, that, that did, we that we give a shit about. Right. Um, what did you have for me, Joe? So Radiohead announced uh, a world tour, at least parts of Woo. a world tour, uh, which everyone is. Uh, wildly speculating, perhaps reasonably speculating, that um, the new album will definitely be coming out this year. If uh, there's not an album, then fuck them. Because... It, would, it would be <laughs> odd for them to go on tour and plan a tour if they weren't planning to be done with this album that they have said they're working on. As well as all the other signs people have pointed out. Yeah. At this point, it would be like, you know, you should come out and say there's not an album if there's not an album at this point. So, of course, with the the... Radiohead with any Radiohead tour, uh, there comes the inevitable uh, Radiohead statement that 
concert tickets are evil, but still pay a lot of money to buy them from us. Uh, bullshit. <laughs> uh, lots of people are mad because of, you know. Wait, uh, wait. I didn't see this. They said something to that effect. They, you know, it's every, they, they, they sell the tickets themselves. Uh, there's a, there's whole controversy because of course, um, you know, the Eddie fan who didn't have an absolutely perfect 10 seconds of internet oh, connectivity yeah. right at that moment um, was totally fucked. And because yeah. Radiohead, you know, hates the uh, concept of concert tickets, it's virtually impossible to resell them because uh, as that's what they came out and said was that, oh, don't try to buy these on StubHub or anything because we will be checking IDs, you know. Yeah. So eh, everybody's just kind of a little grumpy about it i mean i remember you know you know how they could deflate the insane cost of their tickets without creating queuing how is how is that they could tour the fuck a lot more that is true uh if you do one tour every four to five years and it's for like 20 dates and you're the most artistically well-respected band in the world uh Sorry, you've made things very scarce. So people are either going to want to pay a lot of money or wait in line to see you. And that's just how it is. There we go. That's the kind of capitalism that uh, Radiohead rails against. And uh, this is not, I would like to just, we're not going to get off on this, but <laughs> I would say this is, this is market <laughs> dynamics, not capitalism per se. Anyway, just let's go tro- on. <laughs> just trolling you. Uh, I do remember I was once at a hostel in New Zealand logging in with like the hostels dial up wireless trying to get tickets to some Radiohead concert like 2003. I failed failed miserably. Yeah. Uh, Well, even last time around four years ago, it was very hard for me to buy the tickets I was trying to buy. Yeah. Um, Did you man? Did you see them in the last tour? Yeah, they were. I saw them in Phoenix when they came here. Nice. I it live should, in Tucson. For those listeners who don't know, it should be noted that Paul and I uh, went to our first Radiohead concert together in Atlanta on the Amnesiac tour. Yes, and we waited in the sun all day, and uh, I actually was uh, very close to passing out during their second encore. The uh, escaping from there at the end was just like I'm dead. That was it. <laughs> I remember we afterwards we stopped at a gas station and I drank a 32 ounce Gatorade in like five <laughs> seconds. <laughs> you know, you know, that was one of the three best concerts I've ever been to. Yes. My big regret is that there were those people passing around gigantic blunts and <laughs> I didn't hit one for some oh, reason. Man, it's probably good though. Like I don't, I may not have made it through the day. <laughs> that might've been the last straw. I think Fair. all I'd, all I'd eaten that day is like two Snickers bars. So that is true. Yeah, yeah. We were, this is one of those things where we wanted to be up front. So we got there at 10 AM and waited yep. in the middle of the Atlanta summer yep. all day. Oh yeah. Good times and totally worth it. Uh, but mm-hmm. probably would not do it again. <laughs> I would it. do that again, actually. I yeah, would I guess so. For a, for a stand-up, non-seated Radiohead concert. So, I don't know about you. I didn't buy tickets for this tour because I went to the last one, and um, it's just not the same if you're in a seated arena. It just doesn't... I agree. It, it, any seated concert is has a ceiling like one-fifth as good as an unseated concert. And I also was... You know, I, I appreciate what they're trying to do, but sitting there and hearing them play... Uh, you know, most of King of Limbs and then four new songs during yeah. this, this seated arena show that, 
uh, deflated it further. And it was still yeah. fucking awesome to see Radiohead. Yeah. But um, not like when we saw them and they were playing Pearly and Airbag and uh, yeah. just, you know, a, a whole host of climbing up the walls and all these amazing songs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My show this last time around, they closed with either the first set or the whole show with um, Paranoid Android. And I got the very distinct impression that they just fucking hate that song at this point. And yes. I, I, they, 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 the lyrics annoy Tom and the over-the-top rock histrionics annoy everybody else. And they're probably just like, well, the fans love it. Whatever. I got the same impression when they played uh, um, Karma Police at the show I was at. It's like, they don't believe in this song you know whatever that means they they don't believe in this song anymore yeah uh, i mean to some extent playing it for nearly 20 years you just yeah just lose the will to give a shit about whatever that song did for you originally. i can't blame them yeah uh yeah i could anyway i could this was I, not yeah. supposed to be a radiohead concert podcast no but I, i've i've spent many many hours like reviewing their concert history in my head so and on the internet so uh yes yes cut it off um guns and roses has also announced a full reunion tour axel and slash oh my uh, god and duff i don't i don't i know nothing about duff uh duff played bass right yes yes um uh i'm just gonna say yes to that uh yeah (laughs) (laughs) was there any reason that you would go see guns and roses if it were like free and I didn't have to stand in line, I would go see Guns N' Roses. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking, you know, that 10 minutes, actually probably be more like 15 minutes that they were playing November Rain. That would be a good 15 minutes, you know. Uh, yeah. But the people you'd be sharing that moment with, there, there'd be a lot of people who look like Mickey Rourke from The Wrestler. Yeah. Like Or like the yes. the, ca- the cast of Reno 911. Okay, okay, okay. But wait, imagine the female version of Mickey Rourke from the wrestling because she will also be there. <laughs> she will. Yes. And you could take her home if you're so inclined. So <laughs> well, anybody that's... out there really needs to get laid. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just, uh, I've, I've decided not to go see Guns N' Roses even if it's free. <laughs> I, you drink enough 40s beforehand. You'll have a good time. <laughs> oh, man. Maybe they, that might be the one of the only concerts that they sell 40s at. <laughs> <laughs> probably probably Duff McKagan branded 40s. Yeah. Uh, his, his personal vintage of uh, malt liquor. That and Bush. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, what else is new, Joe? I don't know. We, we have... We we have to bring up the fact uh, that Pitchfork changed their website. Which what's that like? What's it like that pit, that Pitchfork? What's a good metaphor for that? Them changing their website. Uh, like hmm. it's it's important to importance to us. It's like it's like being at work and like someone just changes the fundamental. You know, like that changes the database software without yeah. telling you, and everything is like so much harder to get to. That's like or, the, our music database is now. <laughs> or to go a bit further field, like imagine, uh, maybe this will be hard for you as a person who went to church his whole life. Like I knew you were like, going there. Yeah, going to a new church where they—that's not an Episcopal church. You know, the Episcopal church has a very set, rigid thing 
uh, order of stuff. So then I go to a, a Presbyterian church. It's like, these motherfuckers are saying the Lord's Prayer uh, with the word debt instead of transgressions, and they're doing it before the sermon or some <laughs> shit. It's, I'm not down with that. Uh, so, yeah, that's about what it's like. I'm not down with this, you motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, I can't laugh or else cough. Okay, um, I'll try to be less funny. That's difficult yeah. for me. Yeah, um, I know. <laughs> um, but anyway, now that now their site had gone from being uh, a really nice, uh, information-rich website, where it was great, to, you could easy to find a lot of interesting uh, new tracks and music, to something that looks like a mobile app. Uh, like yeah. a sh- that's that's meant to just make you feel good when you're using it, viewing it on your phone. Um, I, I forgot to look. Have they they had a separate mobile site before? Have they gone to responsive just one set of URLs? It now? it it looks yeah, it looks pretty similar. Uh, well, you can tell just by looking at the URL. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yes. No from that from that side, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but the the I even think that the desktop site. Uh, seems to have, you know, is obvious as, you know, I, I mean, maybe, maybe 80% of the people that go to Pitchfork go to it on their iPhone. Um, I bet. So now it looks like it's designed for that. Anyway, it's annoying as fuck. They've moved the review, album reviews below the fold. And it's yeah. just if you're going to Pitchfork and the album reviews like that day's album review is not the first thing that you see like to me that's just that's yeah. why the site existed was to give these thoughtful reviews yep and now it's all about you know the latest kanye news and that is the biggest problem not only that i mean they had the news in the top left before uh but it was um now you really only see three news items, uh, three headlines, because, you know, we have to see the stock photo of Drake above the headline about Drake. Right. Um, whereas before there were like eight headlines you could scan immediately without yeah. even clicking anything. Um, so if anyone out there wants to, wants to create a Chrome plugin that makes it look like the old <laughs> site, we are... No, no, no. As we discussed, not the old site, I want 2003 Pitchfork back. Yes. Because... We were complaining yes. about this, and I looked up the 2003 version on uh, archive.org, and uh, I love it. It still looks cool to me. It's all this, all this text. It's so much yeah. text. I love it. And, and you can see everything in like one screen. Uh, so that ties into my one other complaint about this, which is they went along what everybody has done in the past three years on the web and went to like a size 18-point font by default for text, which I personally hate. I want like a size 10. Yeah, um, what, who is reading these sites that, that needs do, to look like? Gawker uh, does it. Uh, Every website in the past three years has gone to big text. And uh, I'm just like, is it for 80-year-olds? Because I don't get it personally. Yes. The answer is yes. Yeah. Uh, 80-year-olds like us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway. Anyway. Uh, uh, do I Should have... We- do you have anything else? Do I have anything else? Uh, this Google Doc in front of me says no. Um, okay. Did you listen to anything good this week? Is there anything else you you heard? Um, you know, I'm sure I did, but that was the main thing that jumped out. There were a couple other tracks I remember liking, but I don't remember who they were. Um, mostly, I sort of skimmed through the new stuff and got back to 
listening to stuff that I, um, that I already have, uh, you know, which I don't do enough of. I actually spend so much time listening to new music that, uh, sorry, that was a piece of tile falling over, um, <laughs> that, um, I don't listen as much to, uh, older stuff as I would like to. Um, but given the, uh, theme for today's podcast, uh, that worked out well. Yes. And the theme of today's podcast, uh, is albums that we feel conflicted about, Indeed. um, which we, uh, Paul, what, why did you, uh, think of this topic? Uh, well, um, mostly I just have wanted to give myself an excuse to get to the bottom of my feelings about, uh, Tame Impala's Currents, which is the one that I nominated for this discussion. Um, because, um, I really, really loved the first two Tame Impala albums, especially the first one. Um, and, uh, I got the third one and, uh, we'll get into all my thoughts on it, but I didn't like it as much. And, uh, I wanted to decide whether it was me or it was the album because everybody else seems to like it just fine. Um, so that was really what drove me to do it. Uh, yes, I would agree that other, other people have loved that album. And I think you made a great choice. And I actually, when you first said, said, uh, conflicted, um, when you first proposed that as a theme, I didn't know where to go with it. And then when I thought of the album that we're going to talk about, uh, the Smashing Pumpkins, uh, Machina slash the Machines of God, uh, I was like, this is perfect. And I didn't even realize this, but I've been waiting to talk about um, my conflicted feelings of love, confusion, <laughs> and uh, maybe even some despair about this album for a long time. For like six since it came out uh, in February of 2000. Yeah. Um, All right. So how do you want to proceed? We're going to talk about uh, Machina, as I call it first. Um, Billy Billy says it's pronounced Machina. Billy so says <laughs> my basic view is that he doesn't get to decide. Um, yeah, oh, there you go. Clearly, the word is Machina. Yes, and there's no sense in which it detracts from my enjoyment of the album to pronounce it correctly. So yes. um, the word does not appear on the album. Right, so he doesn't whatever. sing it on the album. So yeah, we he we could we could decide. Um, although it'd be weird if you called a door like a dory. Yeah. Well that would be douchey, but, um, the other um, big example of this for me actually is, uh, the first time I heard, uh, the Beatles a day in the life. Oh yeah. Um, uh, the last track on Sergeant Peppers. Um, there's a line where John Lennon says, um, uh, he blew his mind out in a car. He hadn't noticed that the light had changed. Apparently he's talking about the guy did acid and was zoned out sitting in his car with the light, you know, cycling through and he wasn't moving. I thought he was saying he killed himself with a gun. Yes. I which, thought the same thing, which makes the, he hadn't noticed that the light had changed line, like just such a dark joke that I love it. And I just continue to believe that that's what he was, you know, I continue to, to pretend that that's what he's talking about. Because I feel it, I, it makes it better for me. I think that, uh, let in, certainly could have understood both meetings when he that wrote that line. And, uh, you know, even though the literal meaning was that he was tripping his balls out, uh, <laughs> there was definitely a darker, uh, second, uh, meaning behind that. So, okay. Uh, but that's funny. I, I, had, I thought the same thing. Um, yeah. Uh, not being 
super familiar with 60s acid slang exactly that's the uh that's the danger of speaking in the vernacular the future will not understand what the fuck you're talking about <laughs> uh but i look forward to the time when no one understands anything on this podcast anymore yeah they're like music <laughs> <laughs> all we do is eat food that's uh the taste sensations are piped straight in through our brain wires Ooh, i like uh, this this uh, all right we're getting we're getting yeah. getting off the top okay here. So how do you want to discuss this album? Uh, I could go track by track. I have thoughts on all well, of them. Let's, or we could talk about it overall. Let's Either get way. there. I actually kind of wanted to explain why I'm conflicted. Or, or I, I want to tell a little bit of my story about why this album is something that I'm conflicted about. Although I'm sure, um, unlike the Tame Impala, uh, Tame Impala's Currents, Machida's definitely an album that uh, Pumpkins fans and 90s rock fans uh, all over the world uh, are conflicted about uh, even since it came out um, and I have been in arguments uh, on message boards with fans from all over the world <laughs> about <laughs> this album um, uh, so sorry no problem uh, so <coughs> okay go ahead <laughs> go ahead I'm waiting <laughs> no I'm done I'm done okay um, um, so this album was released uh uh, in February of 2000, um, the year 2000, uh, our senior year of high school, uh, mm-hmm. I got, I, uh, made up some excuse to get out of my like third period class so I could go buy it. Um, I think Kmart was like the closest place I could get it. Cause I had to get it on Tuesday, uh, when it came out. Was uh, I with you on that trip? I don't know. Poss- it's very possible, but you know, um, yeah. I'm sure we all had the album by like, um, 3.30 p.m. Or yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I remember actually I listened to it in two different parts, like, uh, um, because I didn't want to listen to it all at once. Um, that's ruined, funny. Because like, that was back in the day when I made a real effort to not listen to the songs before I had the album. So like I listened to like the everlasting gaze because the single uh, came out, but I had like specifically avoided downloading, you know, bootlegs of the shows they were playing where they're previewing the new songs. So that's Uh, fascinating because I did not follow that policy with this album specifically. And I heard probably four or five of the studio versions of the tracks. I know Raindrops and Sun Showers was one of them before it came out. Um, and I was so uh, not as blown away by the album as I hoped to be when I first listened to it that I thereafter adopted the policy you just described and have stuck to it ever since. And I still try to avoid any previews of albums I'm really looking forward to. It's a good one. I mean, I think a lot of artists actually now by releasing them with little to no fanfare, um, mm-hmm. beforehand uh, have kind of adopted that uh, or accepted that that's maybe a, a better way to present albums than three. Well, that and everybody's yeah. going to steal them before well, they get released anyway. Yes. But. Yes. Um, uh, but considering everyone's going to steal them after they get released, uh, <laughs> I, I like to think that there's some artistic reasons behind it anyway. Um, True. So I, I, I even remember it being my room listening to this album and being very, feeling some letdown um mm-hmm. for those of you who are not deeply familiar with the uh, depths of the pumpkins catalog it was a return to rock 
uh, after their mostly electronic and acoustic album Adore, uh, which was the follow-up to Melancholy. Um, uh, and it uh, has layers and layers of what the Pumpkins would call cyber metal or <laughs> American Gothic. Uh, it, it, they came up with various names for it, but uh, really the production on the album is uh, uh, layered and kind of uh, hides the individual instruments uh, below an overall uh, wave of distortion um, in a way that's Which, very... Go ahead. Well, that's that's something the Pumpkins had been doing for every album before that as well, just with a different kind of result a little bit, I would say. Yeah, I would say, though, in, in Machina that, that you know, on, on most, like, melancholy tracks, you could really hear, um, you know, you could distinguish you know, lead guitar, rhythm guitar, bass, drums in true. a way that's even more difficult on Machina. True, um, true, true. Certainly uh, in some parts of Machina. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Paul, could we actually listen to a track? Yeah, which uh, one did you want to play? Let's play This Time. So, uh, I, I, I have come to really love that song. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's, uh, a fantastic, um, the songwriting is fantastic. Um, and as you, uh, get into it, you know, the, uh, if you, if you imagine, or like me, you've sought out acoustic versions of it, um, you realize what a, what a beautiful and powerful piece of music it is, um, that here is sort of again hidden under many layers um and really that little clip that we just played like the entire 75 minutes uh or or of the album sounds exactly like that um to some extent to some extent you know it there actually i think a lot of different flavors on this album even if there's sort of a unifying production you know when certain thing each instrument tends to be produced the same way across songs, but the mix of instruments really varies a lot. But when I, when I heard it as a, uh, 18 year old or 17 year old, I, I think my impression was that it was kind of flat. Uh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, in a way that I wanted it, uh, 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 it wasn't what I wanted from a Smashing Pumpkins album. Um, I would agree. I sort of felt like that at the time. Um, there were certainly... I So with the Pumpkins, especially back then, it was very hard for me to come to an objective opinion about my own reaction to them. Yes. Because, uh, you know, your favorite band in high school carries so much psychic weight for you. Um, really a lot of your aesthetic and even philosophical opinions get determined by 
how you feel about your favorite band in high school um, at the time. And um, uh, I really, it was the first album they released actually since I became a fan of theirs. And I really, really, really wanted it to be great. And I had some qualms about it, even though there were a lot, there was lots of stuff I liked. And over the years, I sort of started to think less and less of it as uh, time went by. I don't know. What was your reaction? Well, you said it. I mean, there, there I literally did not understand as a uh, teenager, uh, a, a teenage fan who was obsessed with this band, um, what to do. I didn't know what to do with the fact that they had let me down with this album. Mm -hmm. Um, I could not reconcile the fact that this was my favorite band and that they produced an album uh, (laughs) that I couldn't totally connect to. Uh, I didn't didn't know what to do with that. Um, Yeah. And uh, I have to say, uh, for instance, the story I remember uh, with that that song this time, um, I was arguing with a friend of ours, uh, and and she said, "There's no way that." Uh, she, uh, I said, "You know, oh, this time." I said, "Oh yeah, that could be on Siamese Dream," and she said, "There's no way anything on this album <laughs> is as good as Siamese Dream," and I, I got actually angry. Um, <laughs> and I found that to be pure blasphemy, and I like did respond, but then I remember. I remember this moment so clearly. I was standing, you know, in uh, our friend Alex, like in the backyard of his house, having this discussion. Uh, and I remember it because at the time, I even knew that I was like lying to myself and that she was completely <laughs> right. And uh, again, that conflict, like I had no way to resolve it. Um, That's great. Yeah. So uh, the funny thing is that going back and listening to it now, I think this album is awesome. It is, yes, yes. How how did you feel going um, back? So what I, I, now listening to it, um, I uh, well now I'm an adult, uh, uh-huh. and I certainly have a lot of distance from the uh, the the main Smashing Pumpkins catalog. We'll ignore the fact for this discussion that they have, you know, yeah, put out some albums under that name uh, since 2007. <laughs> um, that's a different podcast where we talk about wow, whether that matters. Um, oh, yeah. We should actually bands. do that sometime. Yeah, yeah. What? How does a band's late catalog affect their overall yeah. legacy? Um, yeah. Anyway. So now um, I... Uh, uh, I mean, I love it. First off, out of nostalgia, I mean, despite the conflict, uh, the conflicted feelings, I listen to it all the time. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I played it over and over in my car and my stereo. Um, so now I just, it makes me think of senior year of high school. Um, it makes me think this is the first time I got to go see the pumpkins. I saw them uh, for the first time ever on my 18th birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, they played all these songs at that show. And at that time I knew all these songs, you know, uh, by heart, uh, mm-hmm. because they were still my favorite band. So that, that nostalgia, uh, obviously I, I love the songs. Like I said, I think the writing is still, you know, I think Billy was still at the peak of his songwriting powers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so I think that the songs really hold up and I think the, the craftsmanship, 
uh, especially Jimmy's drumming and mm-hmm. and some of the guitar tones. You know, a lot of this is uh, the guitars, the tuning on this album is um, very uh, esoteric. They used a lot of strange uh, mm-hmm. guitar tunings. They had to find special guitars that actually stay in tune <laughs> for what they were doing. Uh, and, and uh, you know, that, that stuff's interesting to hear, especially at a time when alternative music was... Um, kind of going the other way and towards uh, lo-fi indie production, um, this kind of stands out. Yeah, uh, and that, that that was the real thing that stuck out to me. Um, so first of all, I agree. I don't know if he was at the peak of his powers, but Billy was still very close to it with yeah. this album. Yeah, um, and he was he was he was in his prime but declining. Yeah, he's sort of LeBron now. Yes, um, exactly. <laughs> Perfect. Anyway. Um, <clears throat> I, I found myself as soon as I, before I was even done listening to the everlasting gaze, the first track on the album, I was like, oh yeah, this is what indie rock just does not do nowadays is have a, have somebody singing over loud guitars and just throwing themselves into it. They just don't give a shit. They want to sing about some big idea and every lyric on this album is pretty much about some abstract concept um uh but um just really really getting into it singing hard and loud and uh trying to make everything sound as expensive as possible like there's (laughs) you can definitely hear the studio budget of a band that sold like 50 million albums before they recorded this one um just there is uh it's very very hi-fi and you know, uh, Billy is actually, to this day, I think he has produced the greatest guitar sounds, like just sounds, of anybody ever, particularly on Siamese Dream and Melancholy. Wow. Yes. Oh, yeah. I don't think it's close. Um, and it's not as good here, probably, but it's still like when the overdriven guitars really kick in on a lot of these songs, like on this time when you get to the to the chorus with crashing down and everything. Yes. Like, it it kicks ass every time. He's yes. so good at that. And it's really just been abandoned by modern day artistic rock and roll. Uh, I, yeah, that's that's interesting that you um, the album kind of gains from the fact that it is now uh, such um, a relic of a different era of rock and roll. Um, yeah. Probably one of the last that was like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, At the time that it came out, I mean, Alternative Rock was already in a free fall. I mean, this album sold very poorly by pumpkin standards. Uh, Now it would be the greatest album of the year. Yeah, well, yes, yes. (laughs) And there are so few indie rock bands that do this. Uh, I I think, you know, uh, Symbols Eat Guitars is the only band that I've uh, Mm. found that seems to be a little more committed to that uh, vision. Um, I like the word you used expensive, um, yeah. expensive and expansive. Um, I think some bands actually like right now are starting to figure out again that this is something they go for, but you know, like you said, they all only have one week in the studio instead of like, yeah. you know, three months. I mean, to, yeah. to, to do, you know, they, they don't have flood producing it. <laughs> um, flood. Yeah. Um, but uh, also, I'm so glad that you are 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 standing hard for Billy's uh, guitar tone genius. I oh, think yes. it's I think it's something that he 
is like you said at at the absolute apex of yes. of you know technicians yes uh, it's almost a word for that uh and something he obviously still cares about to this day i mean there are stories you know that if you work for him while he's recording an album it's you know you're you're there from <laughs> dawn until midnight uh from, late. from dawn till dusk joe yes. sitting right there i know i know <laughs> twilight to starlight um uh but to get okay so to get back to the the conflicted feelings about this album uh um, yeah uh because i could um yeah so we talked about what's good what do you not like so much what Still. do i not bad yeah so um uh, I think what's missing from this album still is emotion. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think it's far more cynical and distant uh, than their other work. And Billy purposefully hides his angst under uh, layers of rock star politics. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get to the heart of the album, but it takes a lot more work. Yeah. Uh, so, this time, for instance, is probably one of the more heartfelt songs on the Yeah, album. and I, even that, I think it took a lot of listens to understand um, what uh, the heart of it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I miss the dramatic tension and uh, release that I mm-hmm. think all of their previous work uh, contained. Um, and I think it's an album where Billy uh, tried to tell his most complex story and he left out uh, some emotion to make room for that plot, uh, which ended up being, you know, very muddled uh, rock opera. Yeah. Know, self-involved. And not semi- only that, not only that it was about this weird concept, but as I was saying, I think this is getting to some of the th- same things you were just saying. Most of the lyrics, when you go back and listen to them, he's talking about like, some abstract concept. It's basically about some sort of headspace you can be in. Um, you know, there's a lot, a lot of songs are just about love in the abstract, you know? Yes. Or, um, uh, you know, maybe some other emotion or philosophical concept in the abstract. Like the everlasting gaze is sort of about, um, uh, you know, fame and re- theology at the same time but yes. it's not like really connected to any particular person's experience of either of those things. Oh, it's, or... it's connected to it's Paul. It's, <laughs> it's connected to a fictional rock star named glass. Right, who right, is right. The star of the album. So we read later on <laughs> yeah. internet forums, but at right. the time this is like, uh, sure. Yes. Um, so I think when you're singing about that, it's sort of, all the emotion kind of has to come from, you know, the instrumentation and also just Billy's delivery of the vocals. So on songs where he sort of like invests some pathos into the way he sings them, I think it works fine. Um, And the lyrics aren't like bad per se. They just don't like suck you into, you know, certainly uh, as a teenager, what the pumpkins did a lot for me was, give me someone else echoing my thoughts about how it's really such a bummer that girls don't like me enough. Yes. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, you can't really get that out of Machina. No, too well. no, that it's, it's simply not there, but you know, Billy, Billy is not thinking about that. 
yeah on this album um i think the perfect song that represents my conflicted feelings about it is uh you know the 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 album's epic glass and the ghost children um which um and and everyone will need to excuse me uh for um the way i approach any pumpkin song which is that i've you know i used to collect uh pumpkins bootlegs and i have um listen to a lot of them like in a hundred different versions so mm-hmm. um but i think this song i started to realize that that it's really beautifully written especially the second half mm-hmm. um this like second movement um is just you know um it 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 maybe is a point where billy understood his ability to tell these uh, well-developed, uh, fantastic, surreal, dark tales with mm-hmm. his music that you don't have to fully understand to really get into. Um, That's true. And I, I just think this, I think the song still really works. And yet, it, right in the middle of it, there's a <laughs> two-minute-long fake interview. I was going to ask, do we know star? whether that's real or whether that's fake? Oh, Is no. It, it, it's, it's definitely fake. It's fake. Okay. Um, Thank God, because if that were real, I was like, yeah. oh, now I understand why no one gets along with you, because it's some ridiculous but, shit no, to say. Right, right. <laughs> um, uh, it's... Yeah. <laughs> it's, over over some, it's, some moody piano played by David Bowie's keyboardist. Yes. Um, that little clip of piano there is actually, like, the theme to the entire album, uh, uh, which was written to be, like, the the you know, melancholy and the infinite sadness, uh, the song for this album, but ended up not uh, being used in quite that way. Um, and I don't, you know, maybe this is just maybe rock stars at a certain point, they have figured out, they know some of their songs are going to be on classic rock radio. Uh, and they just start thinking, okay, we have to write some more songs, uh, that, uh, will be there alongside them. And then also, you know, songs about what it's like to be a rock star, uh, <laughs> whose shit's going to be on classic rock radio. And I mean, that's not the pumpkins weren't the first to do that. They certainly won't be the last. Uh, well, they could be, uh, you know, one of the last, uh, to, um, produce any classic rock. But, um, uh, I, I think that there's certainly, um yeah they yeah certainly they there's a point where it's like okay well you know with this album it's looking back on it, it's like okay this is where they started to um you know lose some of their magic and to their credit they uh broke up after this album they announced it um during mm-hmm. the tour for this album and uh thank god uh, that I had much more angstful things going on in my life, uh, all all girl related, um, that were taking up all, a lot of my emotional capacity. Because otherwise, the Smashing Pumpkins <laughs> breaking up would have been easily been just the worst thing that ever happened to me. But it was it was already low down on the list with a bunch of uh, girl drama things that had happened. <laughs> so a lot of heartbreak. Excellent. Um, yeah, speaking about that song specifically, uh, Glass and the Ghost Children. Yeah. I agree with you. The second part is 
wonderful. I actually really love the first part still too, more than I expected I would going back. Um, now I can actually identify it as psych rock, which I didn't have enough yeah. breadth of knowledge to understand, which is not really a mode the pumpkins did a lot. Um, and then I agree the part in the middle, I'm not really mad that he did it. I appreciate the willingness to try weird things that would lead to having a tape manipulated fake interview with yourself, uh, that you're just crazy enough for it to be plausible that those are actually things you would say, um, over moody piano, um, you know, that's, it doesn't work, but the fact that he would try something <laughs> like that is indicative of a, an adventurous spirit that could produce good things elsewhere. But, you know, I think the song could be brilliant if they found just some other way to segue between the first and the second parts. Um, right. Because that was sort of silly. And which, and, which they, la- which they later did in basically every live version of the song. Yeah. What do they do? Do they just go straight from the booming drum part to the it, coda or what it really depends on the era well, i mean now they've played it a bunch at post reunion but yeah. uh yeah they they have some uh uh various little tricks that they do okay. um, i believe on the machina tour they used the they definitely did not use the interview like in the middle of the song <laughs> billy should have just tried to do the different yeah. vocal effects <laughs> into the microphone oh god um, anyway yeah um, so do you have any other, uh, any, any other, um, notes on the tracks that you really wanted to, to get out there? Well, I, I'll talk about a couple just as a microcosm of the album as a whole. Yeah. Um, so you started off and you've got the everlasting gaze, which going back, that song is fucking awesome. It's so um, good. It's so underrated. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a, that's a classic alternative rock barn burner. Yeah, so I hadn't listened to this album in forever when we decided to do it for this uh, show. And like you, I listened to it a million times back in the day. So having you know years of space from it uh, was nice because um, uh, I was able to pay attention to it. With songs that I've listened to too much, they just I can't they can't hold my attention anymore. Um, so um, I was able to to pay full attention to it, and um, this song ruled. Wh- you know, I remembered everything about it, but it still just surprised me how much it ruled despite that. Um, the riff is great. The chorus is wonderful. I uh, really love the way the contrast between the sort of um, pure metal verses and the more gauzy, shoegazy chorus. Um, yeah, I always forget about that. The, the yeah. production there is amazing. Yeah, really good. And then, I, uh, again, here's more Billy billing, being weird, willing to do weird things. Um the fact that a dude who can't really sing that well and has a voice that 80% of people who listen to it think is just deal-breakingly annoying uh, would put uh, a full verse of him just chanting a cappella uh, about some weird uh, lyrics about fame and God um, uh, is awesome. And then it leads right into a really great outro that just takes every elements from, you know, mo- bits from the first part of the song and turns them up to 11 in a way that totally works. Um, so that just, it's great. Wonderful way to open the album. Uh, really kicks ass. Then we immediately go from there to Raindrops and Sun Showers, which I was thinking about it, has to be the worst on-album Pumpkins track since Gish, mm. I think. Like, I really yeah. don't think, I couldn't think of one that I definitely think, oh, oh written by Billy, I should say. The James E. Hot one on Melancholy isn't so great. Um, Anyway, um, it's 
you know, it totally kills the momentum coming right after uh, The Everlasting Gaze. The production yes. is, is sort of a disaster. You can't really... Uh, the the drums and bass, which are half electronic, it sounds like, um, overpower everything else. Uh, I think if you... Um, and then it's like one and a half minutes too long. At the end, he just sort of drones on and on with this uh, chorus melody that is one of his weaker vocal parts, I think, both in delivery and in writing. Um, just not very inventive of a melody. Um, so, you know, it's possible it could become a decent song. I think if you turned uh, the production like just a couple notches towards like a more crystalline like junior boys type of sound um and mm. cut like 30 to 40 percent of the length of the song <coughs> but i don't know this is the first album good. that has it's... that has missteps like that you know yeah i mean at the time i thought the uh the song later on crying tree of mercury was the easy winner of the uh worst pumpkin song on an album uh, ah. but now I, now I think raindrops, uh, is probably would be, is even worse. That's funny. I actually really like the crying tree of Mercury. I, that's, that's a song that's grown on me as I started to think more about the, the lyrics of it. Yeah. Anyway, so that's sort of a, and then after that you have stand inside your love, which is like the obligatory, obvious single of, you know, yeah. like we have a little guitar intro and then we have a quiet verse and we have a big soaring chorus. It's also and aged and aged well. Yeah, and actually, you know, I was thinking about that song. <coughs> Excuse me. My main thought about it was thinking back to the video for it, which was all four of them in these sort of like weird chess piece dress things with these big uh, skirts that stood out all the time. Yes. Which on Jimmy especially was very funny. Um, <laughs> it didn't look like he hated it. It just like looked like somebody was, Billy was like, hey man, uh, art director says we're going to wear these dresses. And Jimmy was probably like, okay. But did not understand the spirit of why he would be no. in a dress. <laughs> anyway, um, somebody like Billy now, who is uh, being a big rock pop star and um, bending gender a little bit and definitely projecting sort of an alternative persona and being a little gothy, I think that would actually play a lot better now than it did 16 years ago. Yeah, that's true. That is very true at the... The way it played at the beginning of the uh, Bush George W. Bush era was just not. Yeah. Uh, uh, it. It was too late and too early. I would yes. say. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Too late to be fully rebellious and too early to be fully mainstream. That's a good point. Yeah. Anyway, um, so that's that's really my feelings about the album now. Is you yeah. know, going back to it, like a whole bunch of songs I really love. Uh, Eye of the Morning is a great song. Um, uh, I actually like the whole, almost the whole last part of the album, uh, starting with Glass and the Ghost Children um, a lot, which Billy described as the weirder, artier ver part of the album, which is true. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, wound, uh, wound is another fantastic song. Yeah. Like, uh, which, uh, yeah, but go there, ahead. But there are just a few disastrous songs every once in a while. Um, not disastrous, maybe, but bad. You know, Raindrops and Sun Showers. Heavy Metal Machine has some good ideas, but... <coughs> not, not good. I, Most I was, of the song is not those ideas. I was, cringe, I was cringing during that one. Yeah, and the outro, which again goes on way too long, is just really bad. Yeah. Um, With Every Light was a song that threw me for a loop immediately, and going back now, I'm still like, yeah, can't, can't get see, down I, with it. See, I, I love that song. Uh, I know. see, I think that song's beautiful. 
No. Um, it could have been an interesting B-side, I think. But that but. would be part of my argument with this album is that I think every song in this album reflects good Billy's, you know, pretty good songwriting at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the production is so uneven. That's interesting. In some way, it product, the production choices, not quality, is so uneven um, huh. that a lot of people are... I feel like the, a lot of the songs just don't survive for certain people. Yeah. Um, Personally, the thing for me that I like best on the album is some of the weirder, more artier bits. Like, so yeah. To me, if you took "With Every Light" out of out of that last part and just had "Crying Tree Mercury" go straight into "Blue Skies Bring Tears," like I really like the sort of dark, sort of rhythmic, apocalyptic type of uh, sound and lyrics those songs have. I don't know. It needs uh, to be short. The album, it needs to be yeah. shorter. There are like three songs I would drop entirely and some others I would cut a little bit. Um, but yeah. Um, overall, uh, I liked this album way better than I thought I, than I remembered liking it. Um, I will go back and listen to it more in the future. And uh, definitely some things... <coughs> God damn it. Uh, some things on here that you can't really get um, from other th- stuff. Um, yeah, so cute. You know, there's not that much music that sounds like Blue Skies Bring Tears, for instance, you know, right. from anybody. Uh, and it's it's worth, I'm, I'm happy that it, it at least it holds up as something to go back and listen to because it's so expertly uh, crafted. Yeah. Um, and uh, at this, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was going to uh, sort of change the subject. Okay. I, I was just going to say that it, it, my conclusion about this album is that... Um, I'm conflicted about it because it's by my favorite band of all time and it's simply not as good as their other albums. Yeah. Um, And it, I think of their five, you know, five albums that will consider their main canon. (laughs) I, I think it's, you know, the most inconsistent of those albums and uh, it's it's probably the worst of them. I like it better than their first album, uh, Gish, because that was so far before I started liking the band mm-hmm. that I I don't connect with it nearly as much. But I just it's it's not their best work, and so that that in the end that's still the conflict. Yeah. Uh, that um, and it's interesting that still at this time I still feel both ex- ex- a lot of excitement and some disappointment when I listen to it. Yeah. So I agree with you that it is too long and that it's inconsistent. I don't really think, despite the fact that it's their one concept album, I don't think it really hangs together thematically or musically that well. Um, so what do you think about the, the idea that Billy is trying to re-release it as a recut double album with all the Machina two tracks, which we haven't even discussed. Well, yeah. So that's the the one thing to, if you don't mind me quickly summarizing that he wanted this to be a double album. Virgin said no, because the door didn't sell that well. So (laughs) they were right. (laughs) uh, Right. So um, Machina two was released by Smashing Pumpkins for free on the internet. Uh, Great pioneers before Radiohead did this. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, uh, I just sounded like Donald Trump there for a second. It's going to (laughs) be so, so great pioneers. Uh, (laughs) It's a big, beautiful double album. Uh, Virgin's going to pay for all of it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um it's uh and 
uh, Machina 2 is completely opposite production-wise. It's grungy. It seems um, raw. Uh, it's very open and uh, yet sparse and uh, at times seems uh, purposefully underproduced um, mm-hmm. with, you know, the, it's, um, and uh, and it's it's a great album um i should yeah we keep talking about their five albums they obviously have six albums um Mm. uh and it's funny even as a super fan uh, i still kind of forget to include that uh just because of the way it was released um and i i'm 100 percent i'm a fan of billy kind of recombining them mostly because i think that um it will produce some interesting things. And I now um, have the ability to just totally separate it yeah. from the original. And I'm like, ah, if it produces things I like, great. And if it doesn't, who cares? That's like, a that's a good mature attitude. Yes. Yes. It won't like ruin it forever for me. Yeah. I'm curious about it. I think it's not really what the album needs. I think it should actually be yeah. cut down a little bit to make a really great album. Yeah. But... um Apparently, they're sort of reproducing some of the Machina 2 tracks that sound way less uh, fussed over than any other Pumpkins tracks on albums. Um, so it'd be interesting to hear sort of more hi-fi versions of those. But at the end, it's just, you know, won't, it, it, there's nothing anybody could do now to change what this album is and kind of what happened to this band, um, yeah. f- for better or worse, um, uh, in there. Uh, in in their post peak post prime, yeah. yeah. Okay, because we could talk about Machina for two more hours, let's move on to Tame Impala's uh, Currents, which Paul is the album that inspired you. Uh, to pick this week's topic of albums that we're conflicted about, um, and I'd actually like to start off. Um, by asking you a question based on what we've just been discussing. Sure. Um, and it's that, are you conflicted uh, by this album because you love Tame Impala? They're one of your favorite current bands and that this album is simply just not as good as their you, other albums. Yes, that is exactly why. And in fact, one of my notes here is, if it weren't Tame Impala, I probably wouldn't have that many feelings about this one way or the other. Yeah, uh, you, you probably wouldn't listen to it more than a few times. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah, so um, uh, by the way, we're just going to go through this real quick because of, I know we've been rambling on f- about one of our favorite bands for a long time, so we'll, we'll keep this brief. Um, but so, you know, basically uh, the first Tame Impala album came out in, um, I want to say 2011, um, I could be wrong about that, but anyway, I heard it and I was immediately like, holy shit, this band is incredible. Um, and it really held up over time. I made Joe buy it for me on vinyl as part of a basketball bet we had together yes. when I won it. Um, and now, uh, it's my go-to album to really rock out to on my dad's, uh, probably he's got $20,000 into his, uh, stereo system now. So when I go visit him, I take that and, uh, go nuts with it. Um, uh, so I just really love it. I love their sound, uh, both the guitar sound. I love the drum sound of all of their albums, even the new one. It's so good. Um, I, 
I, one theme I'm picking up is that I really care about sounds, uh, the way things are produced <laughs> and recorded. Yes. Um, makes a big difference to me, and I love the way he does it. Um, and uh, just really, really inventive songwriting. Like uh, uh, somebody, it was probably a Pitchfork or r- reviewer noted that the thing he really excels at, especially on that first album, is just these sort of meandering melodies that um, have a lot of energy, but sort of go on and on in different directions. And you never know how they're quite going to go. Um, that lasts for, for a lot longer than most sort of pop music, uh, uh, themes do. Um, so, uh, all those things I really loved. And then we get to this album and, uh, I'm all for artists dropping loud guitars who have been into loud guitars before. Uh, Kid A is my favorite album. So, uh, that's not really the problem, but um, this album just does not do it for me. Um, the The first track, "Let It Happen," uh, is fucking incredible. It's probably my favorite song from last year. Um, I just really love it. It has one of those uh, sort of clever melodies that uh, takes you weird places. And he actually, you know, in the middle of that is when he gets into the looping breakdown uh, bit that gets all mechanized that yes. it's genius that it's both immediately sounds like a glitch and like a, uh, a logical part of the rhythm of the song. Um, and, uh, then after that, the next real song, the moment is quite good. And then we get into changes, which is just emblematic of everything I'm not into about this album. Um, again with the sounds, like I just can't get into that, adult contemporary early nineties keyboard thing that he uses on this song. And then a lot of the other songs throughout the album, you know, sort of like a bell like keyboard patch, um, with sort of slow mid tempos. And, uh, I don't know from there on out the album, the, the songwriting doesn't really grab me. There's some, you know, good rhythm parts here and there, a few good bass lines. Um, the lyrics, um, if you take the psych rock out from underneath them, uh, I just don't feel like the uh, vocal performance or the the lyrics are really carrying it by themselves, and uh, I don't know. I I tried to to come up with more specific things I don't like, other than I just don't like it. But uh, at the end of the day, it's sort of just soft rock that doesn't do a lot for me. That was that was pretty specific. I mean, I, I think okay, that, yeah, they're they're. Um, it's, it's a little weaker than his other stuff in several different areas. Um, yeah. What was your and, feeling about it? I and mean, so, I uh, you know, I, you know, obviously let it happen when they first started playing that, um, like on Sirius XM, I've been driving a lot at that time. And I was just like, this song is fucking awesome. This whole album is just going to be the next level for this band. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, I started you know, hearing parts of the rest of it. And I listened to the whole album and I was just like, what is this? Um, <laughs> I, I think the, the song, cause I'm a man really mm-hmm. exemplifies that for me, uh, that, uh, I actually, you know, uh, that was kind of the next quote unquote single. And right. I just was like, he just keeps singing cause I'm a man woman over yeah. s- this slow early nineties rock. And, uh, this is, there i don't get it yeah um i i think there's i kind of think it's maybe it's sort of weed rock taken too far if i could maybe. say that that there's a, a a bit of um a feedback loop where um 
you know, that there's this assumption that people are going to be stoned as hell listening to this album, but it's like too far down that rabbit hole. I was stoned as hell the first time I listened to this album and I was, it was making me mad how much I wasn't into it. That's well, that's kind of what I mean. That it's like, if you're, if you're writing for that purpose, maybe it it gets, uh, too, um, that there's one too many, uh, layers there, you know? Um, yeah, I, I, layers is my is the word of the day. Uh, so I actually the one thing that I want to bring up is that for this discussion, I went back and listened to um, uh, both Inner Speaker and Lonerism, the first mm-hmm. and second albums um, in a row, um, and I actually found that uh, I thought that this album was a big departure before, but then when I listened to all those, I I, f- I felt this was. Uh, very easy to see a continuum going from the um let's see how do i want to say it uh uh going from you know lonerism was on average i thought it was a little more there's a little more of a groove Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it contained noticeably less hard rock than inner speaker while still yes. having plenty of it. Yes. And, you know, it just as two data points, you know, you didn't know where the band was going next, where he was yeah. going, but now with currents, you could see that, that, that was a steady change. Yes. Um, and that, so that was interesting that, you know, maybe even with their second album, which has some fucking awesome songs on it. Uh, mm-hmm. was benefiting from the glow of their, uh, you know, as you said, near perfect uh, yeah. first album. Yeah. Um, I agree with that, that there is, it is sort of the average of the two, the middle lonerism is. Um, yeah. But I think I, it worked a lot better there, personally, for me. Um, yeah. It's uh, the songwriting is better, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I would say if anybody does want to hear... Uh, a really good version of this sound over more pop, less rock music. Uh, there's an album from a few years ago called Melody's Echo Chamber by a, an Australian uh, woman uh, that Kevin Parker produced, the guy from Tame Impala. Cool. And it sounds, so it sounds a lot like one of his albums, um, but uh, I think it works a lot better than Currents, personally. Um, the, that really leaves the question of, if you and I pretty much agree exactly, what does, uh, what does the rest of the world see in this album? Like, why, <laughs> why was it... Why does it uh, get so many plaudits? Um, I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, actually you and I had a, had a discussion of this. Um, uh, just before this album came out. Before this album came out, we were said that uh, we thought Tame Impala was the uh, band with the most... Uh, the rock band. The rock band. Uh, with How did you put it, Paul? The most, the most critically acclaimed rock band. The one with the most sort of capital with critics you might yes, say yes and they, they had the most capital to spend um and they spent it this is the way they spent it uh on a 90s soft rock album yeah with a you know and um i, I you and i did not want them to spend it that way uh <laughs> but maybe you know that is the product of um our age and experience um <laughs> indeed yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, but I could say that I, I, I did try and think like, are, what would a fan of this album be into? Yeah. And I think that they would just, it, it would appeal to someone who, 
uh, wanted who is maybe turned off by the more complicated, uh, more complex songwriting uh, when it appeared on their first few albums and wanted something just chill. Yeah. Maybe so. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) to some extent, it's the same people. You know, it does fit in with a little bit of the sort of, uh, you know, with that sort of adult contemporary element. You know, there are a lot of things. It's also some sort of 70s soft rock and some 90s, uh, like you were saying, stuff going on. It does fit in a little bit more with the, you know, there are a lot of bands sort of mining that sort of territory a little bit. So yeah, I mean, it maybe might, it just fit the zeitgeist. I don't know. Actually, now that, I, now that you say that, it might fit with um, someone who, you know, we were born in the early 80s, but someone who's born in the late 80s uh, or in the 90s, it might fit a different kind of, you know, a different band of nostalgia nostalgia mm-hmm. for them um, where some of these sounds remind them of um, or perhaps have no connection to music that they ever heard you know growing up um, whereas you and I it reminds you of something we heard in the you know like what's what reminds me of what I heard like in the car with like my parents or something um, yeah. if you'd never heard these sounds before you might have a very different reaction so yeah um Okay. All right. Well, cool. Um, that's our show. Thanks everybody for, uh, listening to us talk about, um, albums that we don't think are that great. Uh, no, just kidding. Um, I still look forward to the next Tame Impala album, by the way. They definitely have a chance to bring you right back. I, I, I do not really look forward to the next Smashing Pumpkins album, but I will, <laughs> I will listen to it anyway. That's funny. I will not listen to it. I haven't um, listened I, to anything since, uh, uh, what was the first reunion album? Zeitgeist. Uh, Zeitgeist, yes. I do. Oh. I just I'm, used that word three minutes ago. I have um, exciting news to drop here. Um, yeah. I am seeing the Smashing Pumpkins in concert this week. Ooh, yeah. With with Jimmy back in the fold. So And and Liz Fair is opening for them. I know, year. right? Yeah, my first, right. Like 90% of the world would be much more excited to see Liz Fair, but... I, it's funny to me that she, it does feel like she's the more au courant art, artist, um, you know, so yes. I'm a little surprised she's the opener, but, huh. Um, all right. So thanks everybody. Uh, check out our podcast at savagebeastpod.com. Please subscribe on iTunes, rate us, review us, um, and, uh, follow us at, uh, Savage Beast Podcast on Twitter. Um, where we do tweet a fair amount, and I think they're good tweets. Personally. Sav- Savage Beast Pod. Uh, Savage Beast Pod, yes. yes. Well, but by the time you get through the pod, uh, Twitter will tell you what the rest of it is one yes. way or the other. So. <laughs> um, cool. Uh, thanks, everybody. Thank you.